0: episode 30 concurrent training welcome to the oxidative potential podcast where we discuss all things sports science and performance i'm your host matthew derosh and with me is my fellow co-host phil patterson enjoy Good day, folks. In today's episode, Phil and I discuss all things concurrent training. So we put forth some definitions surrounding concurrent training versus supplemental training. Also, we dig into some of the weeds surrounding, um, you know, considerations to take when we are trying to drive two specific different adaptations on either end of the spectrum. Um, we dig in a little bit into the molecular mechanism and what is currently um, unknown surrounding that. Also, we dive into different things surrounding the, the differences we're seeing in some of the research, depending on, you know, training volume of specific um, areas, whether that's strength or the endurance side. So, hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Some some good tidbits in here to take out. And if you're looking to contact filler or I for consultation inquiries, either hit us up on Instagram or hit me up on my website. Um, yeah, so... Hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you later. It seems to follow this guiding principles of biology to some degree. Yeah, Um, the the specificity. Exactly. Specificity Specificity. is key to all adaptations. Exactly. So what I want to kind of parse out right now, I think everyone's going to probably learn some really cool stuff in in this podcast about concurrent training. But what I want to start with a definition is my concept of concurrent training and, you know, the research that we're going to talk a lot about today is essentially splitting endurance training and strength power training into kind of like a 50-50 category. So what I'm not talking about today is being a professional cyclist or maybe an amateur runner. And you know, running 15 hours a week and strength training like twice or three times, yeah, that I would consider supplemental training, right? Um, so that's we're, and I think even though if that's your if that's your jam, if that's what you're doing, you're still gonna learn a ton today, mm-hmm. um, about some certain uh, you know, responses that that we're seeing in the research, yeah. Um, so don't kind of be thrown off by this, but this is would be considered like the hybrid training. So stuff you're seeing like Fergus Crawley do and um the other guy i can't remember he did the 5 minute mile and the 500 pound back squat too. oh ryan hall was, no not ryan hall there's another guy that did oh, it before oh i ryan. know who you're talking you know about what i'm talking about
1: yeah, yeah. he was a is a crossfitter um, yes yes yeah, yeah i can't remember his name either Forgetting so his name. yeah so, so sorry about so, sorry to yeah, that yeah dm us if you uh, if you know his name um, yeah. <laughs> cuz we're blanking right now um but yeah this is this is for a lot of people um i think you know crossfit athletes would highly benefit from this discussion Um, high rocks athletes, uh, I mean, like combat sport athletes, Matt, like you were into, and that's why you got into a lot of the concurrent training literature. Um, because the, the fear is, is that if you need to be super strong for your sport and -hmm. you're also partaking, uh, in a lot of endurance training, you, uh, may or may not be hindering those strength adaptations that you are, are trying to, to get and keep. For sure.
0: And one of the things I'm seeing now, too, is I see this big movement of strength training for endurance athletes, right, where we're seeing this kind of like push like, oh, everyone needs to be strong to go fast or to like run long or be more economical. And I agree with a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But I also want to throw out some of the stuff out there where it's like, if you're if your main goal is to go fast, and your main goal is to like run long distances, like, I want to talk a little bit about these limits that we're seeing here in the research and being mm-hmm. like, Oh, Hey, it looks like if you're doing this much. It it's most likely going to interfere, um, to some degree. Um, so yeah, let's, let's start off with actually kind of a story of how this whole thing started. Um, and this was from Robert Hickson, which is a beast in exercise physiology. And he's published some crazy papers out there. On like VO2 Max, which we mentioned in a previous study where he had people like doing like a crazy training program and they seen like huge uh VO2 max increases in like 10 weeks that has like never been yeah, re- wasn't re- it like
1: like 30 or 40 percent in like 10 weeks yes. because they were doing yes. just like insane <laughs> amounts of uh you know training at or close to VO2 max, VO2 max yes. So this guy back again, Robert Hicks and a beast
0: um is back with a similar study now so what what the problem was was that hickson came across was he was a power lifter and he went to do basically his postdoc work with uh with another famous professor called john hollisley so this guy was kind of like the endurance
1: guy right like
0: everyone knew hollisley as the guy
1: to go to for endurance exercise research He's the guy that first showed that your mitochondria, uh, your enzymes actually, uh, get better and your mitochondria, get bigger with endurance exercise. Yes. This guy's found a lot, like a lot of the stuff that we kind
0: of push off of today or hold as base knowledge. It's it's from this guy. Yeah. So he wanted to butter up his professor and be part of the team. So he went out there and, and put the miles down. And even though he's a power lifter, he was going out there and running, um, with the professor. And, but what he found was that even though he was still like, you know, training hard in the gym, that this increase in running was taking away from his strength. So, you know, he went out and kind of talked to, to the professor about it and said, you know, look, I I think that I'm getting some type of, uh, interference effect essentially, um, from all this running and I'm seem to get, you know, I'm losing some strength here so then he decided that you know this would be a good thing to to go out and study so what he did was he took three groups so one group just did strength training the next group did just endurance training and the third group did both right so concurrent and basically the strength training group what they did was a you know five days a week And basically, they were just like max effort lifts, basic powerlifting stuff, but kind of an extreme version of powerlifting. Um, So, you know, they were doing that, yeah, five days a week. And then the endurance group, um, they basically trained six days a week and three days of cycling, three days was running. Now, this is the crazy part, right? So what they were doing was... You know, for the cycling protocol, they were doing six five-minute intervals at VO2 max, right? So three days a week. And uh, and then for the runs, they were doing 30 minutes as fast as possible per day, right? And then that increased to 35 minutes and 40 minutes, which is insane, right? Like, it's like how the you know, these how guys did you get anybody
1: just, through these studies? Like, I I, I had trouble getting people through seven sessions of 10 minutes at 90% heart rate or one yeah. minute at 90% heart rate, one minute rest 10 times. And yeah. he's over here, you know, doing something that would probably kill me after the first day. Yeah. And it's,
0: it was just, there's just like back then, it's just a different type of society. Like, you know, you can't trick someone into doing that nowadays because there's no. the internet and people are like, screw this. Right. right. Um, so yeah. And basically, um what the concurrent training group did was kind of a mixture of both right so they did both the strength and they did the endurance protocols right so they they didn't this is the crazy they year they mix both of that them they, that they mixed both of them together and they yeah. did both of them to full degrees um and they had like two hours of rest in between them adequate um yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what they found was at the end of the 10-week program, the VO2 max, that which they did on the bike and the treadmill, for the strength training group, they showed a 4% improvement in VO2 max. And we're going to get to why they might have seen that, which is, you know, there's a lot of things in my mind that I've been kind of postulating over the years. Um, but in the treadmill, there was no difference in VO2 max. Now that was a strength training group. Now, for the endurance and concurrent training group, both of these groups, they had a 17% increase on the treadmill and a 20% increase on the bike, right? So both of them had similar improvements in VO2 max, um, but the concurrent group was equal to the strength training group up until um, like the sixth and seventh week of the study. Mm-hmm. Then their strength tra- started to get impaired. And this is is going to make sense for what we're going to talk about later um, as well. Um, So yeah, basically, but it's, it wasn't to a large degree. So they did get stronger. They got much stronger. It's just that there was a slight bit of adaptation that was kind of lost in the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. So this was really what pulled the trigger for every concurrent study that we've seen uh, to this point. Now, this was the guy that started it all off. And this is where we hear the interference effect being thrown out there. This is where we hear like, uh, oh, strength training is bad for your, you know, endurance performance, or vice versa, endurance mm-hmm. is bad for your strength. This was kind of like where this all started. So, bringing it into today, we've now had several of these studies. We've had several reviews. We've had several studies on molecular mechanism. We've had several studies on sequence of endurance and strength training and how they should be sequenced, frequency, um, also modality, the differences between cycling and running, uh, swimming and rowing, all these different things, right? We've really kind of got a lot of information, but the point that we're at right now, we still don't have a lot of uh, molecular mechanism really well understood. Mm -hmm. there's a few little markers that we do kind of know somewhat well but when you start to dig into the research you realize like hey um you know it's not that and i'm sure you could talk to that phil like you probably see stuff in research all the time where it's like you hear people state like hey yeah we know the molecular mechanisms behind all this and that but you realize on a different
1: level it's like ah we actually yeah yeah i can go into that a little bit so um something i mean kind of like the this first paper that we're talking about right um Hickson took these these people through a pretty I- incredibly challenging um you know regiment of training over 10 weeks and um you know it's it's not surprising that you know with this sort of stuff you see so, some level of interference effect right because the just the uh, sheer amount of volume and load that these uh, concurrent this concurrent training group is undergoing um you know is it's a lot there's probably going to be some level of maladaptation going on and then yeah. you know so then what happens is people are like well we're really interested in looking at the exploring the mechanisms behind why uh this may be occurring mm-hmm. so a lot of the times and this is kind of where uh my research during my phd kind of comes in is um, we see or what what we'll do as as researchers is we'll we'll say oh well we've identified these pathways um, mtor and ampk being being two of the major uh, energetic and protein synthesis uh, signaling pathways within the skeletal muscle and um, people will will tag these and then they'll be like okay well now let's take a group of mice and let's uh, overexpress a certain protein you know, something that is related to AMPK or mTOR, um, Mm -hmm. let's get rid of a certain protein. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is based on this, uh, non-physiological response, like you can't, you can't just like take a human and knock out a a piece (laughs) of AMPK, they would die. Um, you could try to do some CRISPR gene editing, but then you get into like the ethical nature of, uh, you know human engineering and all of that sort of stuff um and what we do is we we take these mouse studies and then we use them um, sometimes as gospel of this protein is you know the only thing that is uh, important for a certain function so mTOR right it's the it's the uh, master regulator of uh, my, my, eh, muscle protein synthesis so you know when you knock out certain pieces of it muscle protein synthesis goes down. AMPK, in a similar vein, is a bioenergetic sensor. So when you knock out pieces of it, the ability to signal uh, these uh, bioenergetic stress pathways goes down. Um, The challenge is is that knocking something out in a mouse is totally different than activating uh, activating or decreasing uh, these protein responses in humans with exercise or sedentary behavior. And they're not going to, they're not going to react to the same extent. So um, one example that Matt was just telling me about is that, you know, there's researchers, and I don't, I don't know this paper specifically that um, have, you know, knocked out certain portions of AMPK. And what they find is that even with exercise training, these mice are still able to uh, have mitochondrial biogenesis, so their mitochondria are still able to respond and get uh, better. Um, and, you know, all this time, you know, people have been thinking AMPK is this, you know, super, super important protein for uh, mitochondrial adaptation and and all of that. Um, so, what I want, what I'm getting at, is that. Uh, you know, take the molecular response papers with a grain of salt um, because they're not physiological. Um, you know, when you're knocking out or knocking in or activating or whatever it is. Um, also, mice are not humans. Um, and then the the third point is that within our cells, we have so many redundant pathways that even when we knock something out, that should be uh super, super important for you know, a certain signaling cascade. Um our body has so many redundant mechanisms that you're still able to respond. Um, so, so we, the bottom line is, is we don't fully understand all of these signaling cascades. We have some level of idea, um, but take all these with a grain of salt, especially when we're uh, looking at mouse studies and trying to translate them into human, human research.
0: Yeah, that, that was a, that was a good stream there because I've, Listen, i'm sure you've listened to several podcasts where people especially when it's surrounding hybrid training they talk about this interference effect and they like me and phil were talking about this before the podcast started like i've heard several scientists say they know oh this sequence it has to be strength training and then under our endurance versus strength training in this order and it has to be at this amount of time because we know molecularly that this knocks it and it's like yeah, to some degree, we do know that. And there's very, very little human science done on molecular mechanism. Like there's very few biopsy studies done on concurrent training. Yeah. So people taking all this stuff from mice, I, I get where they're coming from. Like, yeah, there's, like Phil said, you know, it can help us understand, but it's very different. And not only that, the more that's done on mice, people, a lot of the arguments that were people making for like certain sequences of training and certain things like oh it has to be this way aren't actually holding up anymore so when we're talking about hybrid training what i really want to focus on today is what are we actually seeing in the field and research like what are we seeing the results on a hard metric level i'm not like we can get into ampk and you know stimulation of hepatic fatty acids and you know ketogenesis and you know fatty acid oxidation all these different things and the same with mTOR we can get into like you know the the mechanical stimuli versus leucine and how those are different and Mm -hmm. how long that turns on mTOR for and we can get into all that but it's not really useful to anyone because no one knows the the fuck they're talking about when it comes (laughs) to this stuff to be honest with you from what i've read maybe maybe i'm wrong on that but so i we we're not going to sit here and pretend like we know um yeah Cause I just don't think anyone knows at this point. Yeah. There's, um, there's certainly even...
1: some good, some good hypotheses and, and, you know, don't, don't get us wrong. Like we, I totally appreciate all of the molecular work that actually has to go into trying to figure out whether or not these pathways are activated, how they're activated uh, to what extent they're activated, all of that. Um, from an applied side uh, it's not as relevant. Um because there are things like we'll talk about, like ma- maintaining uh, adequate energy intake, that mm-hmm. are going to uh, you know potentially affect this interference effect a lot more than you know whether or not you're activating mTOR enough or whether or not you're uh, overstimulating AMPK. Um, yeah. So so that's yeah, no, that that's kind of our bent is yeah is yeah. is from the application side of things. What can you do as a coach or an athlete? Um, but we do recognize that, uh, you know, this, this sort of molecular research it is very important just because, yeah. you know, if you can, uh, start to understand the the mechanisms and the pathways behind why and how we adapt to certain things, um, you know, maybe we can, uh, have targeted interventions for them. Uh, yeah. so, so there is importance to them. It's just, uh, from the context of, of, you know, this podcast, uh, we're going to try to talk more along the applied side of things
0: yeah so we'll get into basically one of my kind of favorite reviews um which is a brief review on concurrent training from laboratory to field um and essentially what this is doing is is taking you know all the research out there on concurrent training and you know, really, really kind of whittling away, what is applicable? What are we seeing? What are we seeing in response? Um, So one thing, let's just get in right off the bat is, um, in this paper, the majority of the concurrent training interventions, muscle hypertrophy, strength and power adaptations were mostly attenuated compared with those after isolated strength training stimuli. So if you're comparing concurrent training, um, you know, just to someone going out there and strength training only, some of these were, you know, attenuated. Some of these uh, adaptations were attenuated. But on the other side of that, what, what, what he talks about in this paper is also there is several other studies that show that this was not the case. So right off, I'm starting with the quagmire. Well, you just said that, yes, they're they're attenuated. Well, in other studies, they're not. And the reasons why these make sense is because what we're really going to get into is frequency, you know, the spacing sequence, um, and also the ratio of, of training. Mm-hmm. So this is why I want to say, depending on what study you read, you really have to take everything into consideration of what were they studying? What were the lengths of of intervention? What was the level of training history with the athletes that were involved? Were they Mm -hmm. moderately trained? So let's just start with what we see with, you know, individuals that are non-trained, right? Because this will help. And individuals that have low exposure to whether it's strength training or endurance training, but they do one or the other on the other side. So what we know is that whenever they study kind of molecular mechanism on that side of things, like whenever you're a strength trained athlete and you go out there and do an endurance exercise, you're still going to see kind of mTOR being activated. And that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like when you hear about Evan, you know, talking about the responses and 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 I've seen this as well, it's like people that are very well strength trained, when they go on and do a run or they go into cycling, you you can see their muscle kind of responding to it like they're in the gym, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, they're getting, you know, some of these, um vascular occlusions quite early on in, in, in the training so there's a lot of reason to think like yeah this is why when you go out and you run for the first time or cycle for the first time your muscles are super sore it feels like you worked out um and it's a very similar response v- vice versa as someone that's very well endurance trained that goes and lifts weights um just like we've seen in, in that study well not in that study specifically but you, you're still seeing some of that uh, PGC alpha activation. Right. And so this is where it kind of gets tricky. It's like, yeah, we're seeing that um, we're seeing AMPK kind of respond to it. So it it does um, just to go out there and say, and someone that has exposure to to neither strength training or endurance, they just see everything activated. And that's <laughs> yeah. why you see people that literally just come off the couch. Their VO2 max goes up when they lift weights yeah, or when they go run, they get stronger. Right. Yeah. Because
1: um, they're so cycle, they their, their bar is so low compared to everything exactly. else that any sort of stimulus that they have is going to increase everything. Whereas yeah. it, it, it makes sense that, or, you know, anecdotally speaking, so I have an endurance background, and it's always been insanely hard for me to uh, build muscle. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, from that endurance perspective, right, you know, like, moderately trained to well-trained endurance athlete, definitely at some more more so at some points of my life. But then going into the weight room and um, you know, even engaging in in moderate to heavy uh, lifting training, um, there it makes sense that my body probably has uh, mechanical adaptations, efficiency adaptations to kind of work towards stimulating more of those pathways that are generally activated with endurance training versus somebody who's on the flip side of things has done a lot of strength training in the past, you know, their body is going to be, uh, more readily responsive with say like protein synthesis and, uh, you know, accrual of, of proteins, um, just because that's kind of what environment their body has always been in. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so that's really interesting because, um, something we, we talk about, uh, with Moxie is, uh like pulmonary limited athletes versus cardiac limited athletes. And I've talked to Evan about this quite a bit is generally cardiac limited athletes are kind of those like, uh, meatball looking, you know, super strong, uh, muscular CrossFit athletes. They don't have any issue, uh, you know, building muscle or anything like that. Pulmonary limited athletes. And I don't, I don't really know why it's like cardiac and pulmonary, but the pulmonary limited athletes are more of the, uh, like a little bit lankier, harder to build muscle, like those sort of things. And they can generally, you know, do, uh, 80 or 90% of their one rep maxes for forever. Whereas the mm-hmm. cardiac limited athlete can only do, you know, like they're your explosive athlete. They can do like five reps at their one rep, or close to their one rep max. And then they're toast for the rest of the day. Um, so it's just, <clears throat> it's interesting. And it's something to, to take into context is the the training history and historical context of wherever that your athlete is coming from. Um, yeah. So
0: because you are untrained, like if, if you like, for example, like an endurance athlete, that's very well trained, goes into a weight room. They're now an untrained athlete, for right? What they're doing. So they're going to see this cascade event of everything kind of going on because they're mm-hmm. relatively un, just as untrained as the person that comes off the couch with regards to that type of stimuli, right? So that type of stimuli is going to a, a engage a ton of different mechanisms because it's just this new response. And that's right. why, you know, but um, yeah. So, and then also what we see is, for example, you know, we see higher, you know, let's just get this mechanism stuff out of the way. You're going to see higher, you know, activations of some of these things if you're non-familiar to. So for example, if you go in the weight room, you're going to see higher activations of mTOR, um, if you're an endurance athlete and vice versa, if you're a resistance train athlete, you're going to see higher activation of AMPK. And this kind of makes sense this is what I was trying to talk about. There's these kind of laws in nature. If you were just to go think about walking into a weight room um, as an endurance train athlete, you're going to see a ton of gains compared right. to, you know, if you'd been in the weight room for, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, so this is kind of, this makes sense. And this is why I'm like, I don't want to talk about mechanism, but I just kind of want to kind of get it out of the way so we can start focusing on like, Hey, what we're seeing is actually probably related to stuff that, you know, might be in the background, even though we don't understand it that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so now let's get into, you know, kind of the frequency. So what we do see is whenever we're talking about, you know, the frequencies of training, there seems to be like, uh, a a total volume effect right so under a certain amount of volume a week right you are going to see essentially zero uh interference effect quote unquote interference effect but once you start to raise that volume up over a certain threshold you are going to see kind of an interference effect Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily how much volume you're doing of both it's how much volume you're doing in total Cause if you're a cyclist that's training 35 hours a week, if you add five, six hours of strength training onto that, you're going to see an interference effect. Right. Right. It's cause you're already at a very high total volume versus if you were, you know, only training, you know, a couple hours of cycling a week and you added five hours of strength training, you're not going to see an interference effect. Cause there's yeah. that volume threshold is, is so low. So on the flip side of that, um, what are what are kind of the considerations to take when we're talking about volume so if we're already an athlete that you know for example I'm a strength athlete and I want to do some type of endurance and not have any type of an interference effect well we would probably want to keep if we're doing moderate exercise it under 3 you know 20 to 30 minute sessions a week we kind of want to keep it under that level if we're talking about moderate intensity Mm-hmm. Um, because we we are going to see a bigger interference effect dependent on the modality of endurance that you're doing. So moderate intensity, aerobic endurance versus high intensity, um, uh, basically uh, uh, endurance exercise. There are two different stimuluses, and that mm-hmm. makes sense. When you're talking about pressing really hard into the pedals, You know the rate of force development, the neurological output, a lot of that's similar to weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we were to do a long session on the bike, you're, you're giving two different stimuluses and your body likes to have a single stimulus to kind of follow at once. You don't want to draw the organism in two different directions, right? Um, the further you're drawing the two directions away from each other, kind of, you know, long, slow distance versus kind of like very heavy powerlifting style, Olympic lifting style, there's going to be a bigger interference effect. So if you yeah, can shape, more
1: risk of interference effect. Yeah,
0: exactly. So if you can shape the, the exercises to be similar to each other, that's better. Mm-hmm. And also it's modality driven too. So when we talk about what we see with cyclists versus runners, there's actually quite a bit of different uh, responses we see there. So for example, cycling does not appear to impair uh, strength training adaptations as much as running does and right. there's probably several reasons for that one being that cycling like we said is kind of more similar to what you would do in the weight room in terms of like exercising your leg muscles um but two the types of contractions are different right when we're talking about cycling there's just this concentric movement over and over again and there's kind of a longer stimulus to the muscle during each pedal stroke mm-hmm. versus running where there's this very very brief, moment where you're coming in contact with the ground and it's they call it eccentric but it is quasi isometric eccentric because you're actually locking your your quadriceps in kind of place like to to lock your lower limb in place Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and yeah it is kind of an eccentric movement but a lot of it it depends on your running style how eccentric that is but what we see with that is much higher rates of muscular damage and running versus cycling right and the inflammatory markers are higher The muscle stress is higher, right? The muscle damage is higher. Everything's higher with running. But um, yeah, so you're going to see different interference depending on the modality. So that's another thing. Like if you're just a hybrid athlete and you don't really care, um, you know, and you just want to get fitter or you're looking to like maximize your strength gains at a certain period of your training, whether it's for CrossFit, high rocks, even if you're an endurance athlete or you're a strength athlete looking to kind of, or a hockey player, whatever it is, team sport athlete, Um, knowing that, yes, cycling is going to aid in your resistance training adaptations much better than running. Mm Well, we also see on this flip side of that too, is like, there's actually higher fat loss with runners, even though it's only a slight amount than with the same basically same kind of volume with cycling. So if you're looking to like keep weight down, maybe as a fighter, that's a consideration to take or a weight uh, category thing. Um, that's a consideration to take too. like if you're trying to build some aerobic base, but you're also looking to lose a little weight. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've anecdotally seen in myself. I've never lost weight cycling. No yeah, matter how same. much I cycle. I've never lost weight cycling. Yeah. If I go out and run for literally a week, it's you know, night and day difference. like i am it's ten pounds down for sure. And a lot of that's yeah. water weight. I'm very well aware of most of that's water weight. But this the caloric expenditure of running um versus cycling for me, it's you know
1: you're using yeah. a lot more muscle mass, yeah, I was gonna say just to add on to that i've I've seen similar things where um you know i I being uh, being a leaner guy, i've i've I always fluctuate between like wanting to build muscle. And then feeling like I get, you know, too big and then wanting to lose weight. Like there's like, like three uh, stages, every single, you know, it's like multiple times yeah. per year. And one of the things I've, I always try to figure out, like, oh, well, well, what's the most effective for trying to like lean out. And, um, when I've been the most lean, I have been, ju- I just like introduce like 10 to 20 minutes of jogging before mm-hmm. pretty much all my CrossFit workouts yeah. and. I never, I hadn't really like connected those dots until like right now, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's typically when I've been the leanest I've been, you know, just like adding on an extra 10 or 20 minutes of running, um, every single day or, you know, every day that I go to the CrossFit gym. Um, so. So again, from that perspective, you know, since it is a little, you know, it's full body workout, a little bit less efficient, uh, more muscle damage, you're probably going to um, have higher caloric expenditure uh, during, during those sort of things. And, uh, you know, that's one of the huge potential uh, drivers of this interference effect that we're finding, especially with the higher, higher volume. So
0: while we're on caloric expenditure, you know, so one of the things that they've noticed in some of these studies too, is that you know lean body like essentially lean mass and our body mass or sorry fat mass fat mass was decreased much more and as the higher intensity training was kind of uh focused on so essentially the more volume of high intensity training that was incorporated um into the total volume the lower amount of adipose tissue um was seen right and this makes sense because yeah when we talk about endurance training, everyone says, Oh, you got to exercise at your fat max, because it's like the most metabolically, you know, efficient way to burn fat. Um, Cause you're burning that the specific... most fat, right? <laughs> yeah. But what, what, and we, we definitely don't see that. You go look at a, a sprinter versus a long distance runner, you know, two completely different looking athletes in, ter- in terms of fat mass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't, you, and I'm not saying that you don't see some endurance runners that are ripped, ripped to shreds, but just like what we see in nature, we can be fairly well assured that, oh yeah, that probably makes sense. I don't see a lot of fat sprinters. Mm-hmm. Um And not that that's the reason why they're, they're
1: they're super lean, but it has something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, so, the, 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 the best thing I've heard is that endurance exercise is a really good uh, way to manually burn calories. Yeah. Whereas like kind of like strength training, high intensity interval training, sprint training, whatever you wanna do, is a better way to burn calories consistently because you're yes. maintaining muscle mass. You're, yeah. uh, you know, like muscle mass is expensive to maintain exactly. on your body. Um, and you know, it's like there, there's been, there's been, you know, some companies that we won't mention that have made uh, livings off of this, uh, Uh, oh, you burn, uh, more calories after doing a high intensity interval training session or whatever it is. And largely that's, uh, minimalistic. That's like 48 calories difference or something if you actually calculate it. But, um, one of the underlying benefits of high intensity training is that main maintenance of muscle mass, which it exactly again, over time is going to allow for, uh, you know, greater. Uh, what would it be like a uh, calorie burn while you're not doing long-term anything. caloric yeah. expenditure yeah, yeah exactly yeah
0: and that's what we're seeing now with the new research is like yes especially with herman Ponser i'm not saying everything i, I i'm just I'm just throwing his stuff out there um is you know your body is going to adapt to the expenditure that you place on it every day so if you want to go out and run for six hours to lose weight your body's going to find a way to try and bring it back to homeostasis so all your neat like your, your non-exercised uh, activity thermogenesis is going to basically drop down. You're not going to move around as much. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to spend a ton of mental effort just to get up off the couch because your body's going to try and conserve energy in any other way it can. It's going to slow your metabolic rate down. When I do RMRs on people, by far people with the highest metabolic rates are always the people with the most amount of muscle mass, essentially, like even taking two people that are at 200 pounds or 170 pounds, the person with more muscle mass has dramatically higher rates of, of uh, caloric expenditure. Mm -hmm. Um, So I see that in practice as well. And you're right. It is an expensive adaptation. And it's like, you're basically what you're doing when you're trying to lift weights to, to become leaner is like, you're essentially trying to cheat the system. Like you're trying to like put on this thing that's super, super like costly and high maintenance and blah, 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 blah. So you can like kind of gain some benefits on the other side of of, mm-hmm. of that, right? Like right. it's it's kind of cool. Um, So yeah, talking now a little bit about like if you're an endurance athlete, like if you're more in the endurance side of things, um, you know, I've seen studies that show with cyclists specifically and taking 30% I can't maybe it was runners taking 30% of their total volume and this is amateur cyclists or runners I believe taking 30% of their total endurance volume out and replacing that for strength training improved their performance or it was fairly uh, closely matched in performance like there was Mm -hmm. no detriment to that um, yeah if it might have slightly improved that but another thing is is like when we're talking about endurance athletes lifting weights, um, they it, there doesn't seem to be an increase in mitochondrial density when you lift weights. Because even if you look at like an endurance athlete and you look at the amount of mitochondria in the muscle fiber, there's much higher amounts of muscle, or mitochondria in the muscle fiber. Right. Versus when we're talking about a strength train athlete, they actually have lower amounts of mitochondria density than um, a sedentary person or a person in the general population which was counterintuitive what i've seen before and what i've heard people say before i used to think that if you lifted weights you're building more mitochondria
1: in your type 2a fibers and it's like
0: uh i think i think it, it really
1: depends yeah on on you know like what sort of uh you know strength training stuff you're doing i can yeah i don't i don't have uh i don't have studies to support this but i bet you you know somebody who's doing like crazy. um well, if you have more hypertrophy, you're going to have larger uh, muscle volume, which could yeah. inherently dilute your uh, mitochondrial, mitochondrial volume density. Exactly. Um, that doesn't which mean that your mitochondria thing, can't though. do. Yeah, that doesn't mean that your mitochondria are still aren't functional. Because uh, yeah. compared to those sedentary individuals, I can almost guarantee you that your your mitochondria are are going to be in a better better shape and better position. Yeah, than yeah. than those sedentary. But um, yeah yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And like I'm saying, I'm not saying like, um, for
1: people out here to be like, Oh, you know, I shouldn't be lifting weights. Yeah, to go along with that, right. Um, You know what we what I kind of teach in my exercise physiology class is like type two a fibers, especially have a remarkable ability to adapt to whatever stress is placed upon them. So they can, you know, have very good hypertrophy you know, if you're putting, doing a lot of strength training and they can also have a lot of mitochondrial biogenesis or mitochondrial hypertrophy. If you're, you know, placing a lot of endurance adaptations onto that. Um, one of the, I can see one of the benefits to performance, you know, with, uh, more functional type two, a fibers being that type two, a fibers are inherently, uh, I mean, they're, they're fast switch fibers, right? So they have uh, higher power output, so having more of them and more efficient, uh, type two, a fibers could lead to, um, you know, better force development with similar amounts of say, like, uh, mitochondrial volume density. So the ability yes. to drive, yeah. uh, you know, ATP from oxidative phosphorylation. Um, so, so that could be one of the, one of the factors that's playing in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, that's kind of, I think we've kind of, uh, Deviated a, a long way from from yeah. concurrent training, in a sense. Yes. But um, I, let's let's talk like practicality, because I've yeah. had uh, people reach out to me who, you know, CrossFitters, high racks athletes, especially who are are concerned about um, the interference effect. And yeah. um, I think I think uh, one of the bottom lines here is that unless you're doing a high amount of volume you're probably not going to have much of an interference effect as long as you're eating adequate amounts of calories. Yeah. Um, excuse me, but for somebody who is, you know, on that, uh, say approaching elite level of CrossFit high rocks, any sort of hybrid sport, what the question then becomes, what is it I can do to minimize the potential for this inter- interference effect? Um, and the answer, like in most things, physiology is it depends. Um, so for example, um, there was a, a, CrossFit athlete who reached out to me who is concerned about interference effect. And I mean, um, especially when you're getting to the, uh, that elite level, right. With CrossFit, you're doing, I don't know, maybe like two, three wads a day. Um, and even though the, uh, The research may be a little bit uh inconclusive when it comes to this i always recommend to people if there is a certain adaptation that you are that you need to target say for instance you want to get stronger as a crossfit athlete have that be the first thing that you do if you're doing if you're going to engage in some level of concurrent training Mm -hmm. um So for instance, if, if an athlete came to me as like, Hey, I want to develop my strength uh, a little bit more as a CrossFit athlete, I would, you know, a put them on, you know, like a a heavy strength training, training regimen. And then I would have either one of two things occur. If they can't space out their, their workouts, at least uh, three hours, I would have them do their strength training and then have them do some level of, you know, like sprint interval training, high intensity interval training something like that in order to minimize uh, on a bike or on a, you know, on some sort of machine in order to try to maximize the strength gains that you're going to get and minimize any, uh, any interference from the actual Metcon that they're doing. Yeah, no, that that's,
0: that's good. And, and what the research shows and is applicable. What I've seen is, is when you're spacing out exercise The higher volume that you have in terms, and it becomes harder. Like if you're training more in a week, it becomes harder to space things out more, Mm -hmm. but you need more space because you want to try and create more space. Example, if you're, let's just, we'll use the CrossFitter athlete. If, like, if you're talking about trying to run and strength train on the same day, let's just take WAD aside. If you're on a volume of like, you know, 15 plus hours a week of training, there's research to show like you know the further that you space those out the more dramatic of adaptations you're going to yield from that so essentially the further that you can up to 24 hours up to even 48 hours and that's not reasonable for people but if you can find a training modality that you can do in the morning that is opposite to the training modality that you're doing in the evening that is the best possible way to structure it in your day now that's mm-hmm. not possible for most people especially people trying to work jobs and be professional athletes at the same time, like, it's just like, you have to kind of do it when you can do it. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a family that kind of mitigates you, kind of scheduling it and you just have to jam it in, that's fine. Um, But for example, what would be better is instead of mixing your training every day would be one day doing strength, one day doing endurance, or one day doing you know WODs, and then one day doing the activity that you're trying to build whether that's endurance or strength right. uh, base is if you can space those out because you will yield better adaptations it's it's the same concept of like if you want to be a sprinter you don't sprint every day right, right. you you sprint once every other day if that mm-hmm. um so if you're trying to yield adaptations for example like you can go do hypertrophy one day and then you go lift really heavy the next day those are kind of two different adaptations yeah um and that's why you see it always kind of done that way and whatever type of training and same with endurance training like you know endurance is a little bit different but you do a lot of low level and low intensity work and then the opposite days you kind of do some maybe heavy intensity or high intensity um so trying to space out your sessions is Mm -hmm. is a big one and the more you can space them out the better. Your adaptations are going to be, and the less interference of neuromuscular uh you're going to see. That's yeah. the big thing. It's like what you're seeing when you're seeing an interference effect a lot of the times is neuromuscular fatigue. So if you go out and run before you lift, you're not going to be able to get as much out of that weightlifting session mm-hmm. versus if you had just, you know, not done it at all or done it much longer beforehand. Um so yeah that that's one thing that can take into consideration
1: well here's a here's a question that i'll that I'll pose to you. So say for instance, you know you had somebody you know come to you and you're like, hey, uh essentially what what you are recommending right now is like let's reduce uh, the amount or the frequency um, of doing those like hard training sessions. <laughs> and I think with a lot of say these sports, Crossfit's a prime example of that. It's like, well, I can't reduce, I have to do three Metcons a day in order to keep up with like the amount of volume. Like what would your, what, what's your rationale and what's your recommendation, uh, you know, to somebody who would be concerned about something like that. I have, I definitely have like kind of my, my feelings on it, but I would just like to hear like, like what, what you would recommend to somebody who came to you. Hey, I want to, I want to improve my strength but I'm nervous about reducing my frequency. Like, you know, I I need to do my three wads a day or whatever. Yeah.
0: Well, first of all, three wads a day, how are you measuring that that is optimal, right? We know that some of the best people have done that, right? But do you have the genetics that can support that? Do you have the nutrition that can support that? Mm -hmm. First of all, if you can, that's great. But secondary, by replacing... By replacing, let's just say, a day uh, or three times of doing wads in a day with one time of doing a wad in a day and one strength tra- training session, how much are you going to lose of that wad fitness by dropping two of those wads mm-hmm. or even one of those wads? To be honest, you'd probably be better off not even doing any wads if that was your training kind of program for six days a week, if you're doing three wads a day. Yeah. There's no way that you're adapting from three wads a day. Like, there's just no way. And I'm not saying that you're not still improving. I'm just saying you're not adapting from all of those. It's, it's, yeah. it, and depending, like, I should say, I should caveat, it depends how big those wads are, or how intense right. they are. Right. I'm talking relative, like if you're balls out doing wads, which most people do, balls out. Yeah. Um, there's no way you're adapting to that. Yeah. I, I don't think. And I and like, yeah, you will get better and you're adapting a little bit, but you're not fully adapting, would mm-hmm. be my guess. Um, and honestly, you you have to experiment with things because if you're trying to get better, you have to experiment. You don't, yeah, there's not a single person on this planet that just gets everything right their first try.
1: Yeah, and as if much as we did, would want super to lucky. get it right the first try.
0: <laughs> exactly, so if you go out and replace two of your wads in one of those days with strength training or do that a couple of times a week, if your performance goes down over a month, yeah, then it goes down and you know like, hey, I gotta figure out a different way to do that. Yeah. But if you're monitoring and week by week it's going down, you can pull the trigger after two weeks, Yeah. right? And I highly doubt that to be the case. And what I say is always take the most conservative line. So, for example, if you're doing three wads a day, take out one of those and replace it with a strength training, mm-hmm. right? If we're just talking this one day a week that you're doing it, or whatever it's three days a week that you're doing this, right? Um, three days out of the six days that you're training, take out one of those wads and do a strength training. You see how you respond to that. Yeah. If you're improving, right? Or you're still maintaining and your strength's going up, take out another one. Right. And see how you're doing and just add a little bit more volume to the strength right. and then keep going and find your limit and say, like, hey, is my strength going up as a plateau? And that's what yeah. I would say to that individual. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one, though. But it's a very common one where people think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I would say the exact same thing. I think we have uh, as a as an athletic society, this overemphasis or um, obsession with how much volume we can get in. And yeah. somehow we wear that as like a badge of honor, right? Oh, I yeah. you know, I see these Ironman athletes training 40 hours a week. Mm. Well, that's all great. But like, is 40 hours a week optimal? Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Your training is just a mode to get you the best performance possible on game day, right? Yeah. So I, I, I love exactly how you were described it. Like, you know, if you're nervous about this, you know, maybe, maybe say let's, uh, let's take, I'll go the endurance athlete side of things. Like let's take an endurance athlete. Let's say we'll reduce, you know, like one of your, uh, longer sessions, you know, from two hours to one hour. And then in that second hour, you know, on whatever day it is, we'll do some level of strength training. Oh, you're seeing improvements in your power output, your, you know, performance, your recovery, all of that sort of stuff. Let's reduce that a little bit more. Because at the end of the day, you want to do the least amount of work that's going to give you the biggest benefits. Yeah. And yeah, I think people get get caught in this trap of especially with like social media, like things like Strava and all of that, like uh, all of like the uh, yeah, like the bragging on social media, right? Like, oh, yeah, I just crushed like 17 segments on on Strava today. When in all actuality, my whoop says I'm at 14% recovery, um, I could probably do a little bit more strength training because I can't even lift a box up or anything like that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just in this chronic state of like, you know exercising 30 hours a week so then i don't have any you know any time to recover any time from my family or any life outside of you know just training and work um but but yeah i i all that rant aside to say i totally agree with um exactly what you were saying um i i think that it's important to like It's important to experiment with your training because like you said, not everybody gets it right, you know, the first time and you know, you may be one of those people that can, uh, accumulate massive amounts of volume. But again, is that optimal for you?
0: Yeah. And you know, another point on this is what are like, what are you putting in your body like carbohydrates is a super important factor. Mm-hmm. for both right you need especially if you're doing concurrent training you need first of all you need high amounts of leucine rich food so the pro it's an amino acid that comes in protein that's signaling for you know it increases mtor signaling all this stuff but regardless of leucine aside just eat a lot of protein right yeah you can probably especially if you're new to concurrent training eat in a surplus you're going yep. to reduce a lot of the stress that you're going to get from trying to like maintain calories when you're doing this shit Mm -hmm. um you know eating a surplus for a little while it will aid in your adaptations and it will aid with easing into the transition and 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 carbohydrates we know this like if you go out with some glycogen depletion and go into the gym you're not going to get the same amount of quality and the same vice versa for endurance especially with Lower level, not some low level endurance exercise. It's not as affected as much, but like we've seen with the actual fibers interfering with the work, this, the same goes with glycogen. As you go up in higher intensity, those sessions are going to be impaired more mm-hmm. by being in a lower carbohydrate state. Um, so those two things. The other thing is you need a base for, for both these things provide a base. Strength provides a base of tissue tolerance and tissue capacity. Mm-hmm so if you get stronger and you have a strength base it's building a base for endurance in a way that you can't get from endurance training you know this by watching people run in ultra marathons and watch people go up hills right we know that the tendon does a lot of the work on flat ground but whenever we isolate to the muscle itself and the muscle working like a motor and having to concentric concentrically attract in large amounts and eccentrically contract in large amounts on hills people that have better tissue tolerance and people that have higher strength outputs are going to be more economical at those paces. And they're Mm -hmm. going to be more economical doing that type of work. Um, and then on the other side of that for, you know, the CrossFitter that does three wads in a day or the strength athlete, that's, you know, you know, lifting five, six times a week, high loads to recover from that, you know, you want a better ejection of fraction. You want to have a strong heart. You want to have more blood vessels going Mm -hmm. into the tissue. You want a base of cardiovascular fitness to recover from that. And that's the thing, especially if you're doing three wads a day, what kind of endurance base do you have to support those three wads a day? I'd be, I'd be kind of, you know, curious to see what kind of endurance base, like the more endurance base that you build, the more that you're going to be able to go out and actually do those three wads a day and adapt from, you know, Mm -hmm. something similar to that. Yeah. Um, It's going to improve your ability to, to recover um and the same with the strength on that side of the wad person like the more you can lift the more tissue capacity tissue tolerance you're going to have to those three wads um but on the strength training side yes endurance low level endurance activity three times a week for 20 to 30 minutes is is not going to impair your strength gains right um so go out and do that cuz it will pay dividends in your ability to recover you're not going to build a huge, huge massive aerobic engine doing that but Mm -hmm. you are going to start you know building the base that's going to further increase your ability to recover um so yeah i think like you know the big takeaway is of you know we're going to talk about supplemental training um specifically for endurance athletes in another episode so we're going to talk about that will probably be a couple episodes long but we're going to talk about if you're an endurance athlete and you're looking to improve performance we're probably going to do a, a an episode for runners specifically and a, an episode for cyclists, cyclists sorry um because there, there's different things to take in consideration there um we're going to do an episode on those but for the hybrid athlete you know lots of carbohydrates lots of protein manage you know what background are you coming from what's your training history mm-hmm. have you spent 10 years doing cross-country and marathons or have you spent you know 10 years in the weight room bodybuilding powerlifting uh olympic lifting or even you know crossfit um and understand that that's going to have a big effect so you know introduce things slowly so if you're a, a runner introduce strength training slowly you're mm-hmm. going to get huge stimulus right off the bat yeah. from lifting yeah. weights. so don't go out and do five days a week of strength training Man. not going to be beneficial for you and if vice versa if you're you know uh, a strength train athlete don't go out right away and do like you know four or five days a week of endurance training, you know, start with one or two, um, even 10 minutes on the bike to start with, like just getting the habit built in. Mm -hmm. Um, then also understand spacing out your, your, your sessions, space Mm -hmm. them out to the best of your ability. Optimally is a session on every other day. So strength training on every other day and then the endurance in between those. Yep. Um, if you can't, then space them out the other end of the day. And if you can't space them out at, at least three hours, and if you can't fuck it, just do them all in one session. <laughs> right. uh, you're probably still gonna be okay unless you're at a certain volume.
1: Yeah, unless you're doing um, crazy then,
0: amounts of volume. Exactly, so, and then the other thing is just manage your volume. Understand when you're hitting the threshold of volume where you need to start taking in more considerations. Right. When you're under a certain amount of volume, you don't really have to take a ton of things into consideration, but, whether you're a CrossFit athlete, high rocks, whether you're just a hybrid athlete, you know, ultra marathons and powerlifting. Once you hit a certain threshold of training, understand you're starting to get into that area where, hey, I got to start paying attention,
1: start organizing things more appropriately. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one really easy way of being able to tell if you are uh, pushing that volume too high is if you can no longer uh, progressively overload your either side of your training um if you're if you're hitting plateaus there's probably some level of interference going on so um you know use that as a marker like say say you go and you do your squats every other day and you know the the first like four weeks you go from like 135 to 155 to 175 if all of a sudden that 175 remains at 175 for like, you know, two, three weeks, um, that's probably an indication that your volume may be getting a little bit too high or you're, you know, you've kind of maxed out your adaptation. So, um, yeah. using that as a little bit of a gauge, uh, I, I, think is, a is an adequate way of estimating, you know, where that threshold is for, um, pushing your volume, uh, yeah, pushing your volume during your training. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a popular subject nowadays. Um, and you know, he'd he'd, um, just basic laws of nature. Like if you're trying to just do what you would think is the smartest, like if you sit down and think about a lot of this stuff, a lot of it, you don't need to read a textbook or you don't need to read a piece of research to understand, oh yeah, that makes the most sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just the order of sequence, like, you know, Phil was talking about earlier, if you're wanting to get better at something, you know, take priority to doing that first when you're fresh right. it's just like, if you want to do good work, you're not going to put it at 12 o'clock at night, unless you're an artist or something weird creative. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. 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 Some night right? owl who actually gets,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> gets inspired at night. <laughs> yeah. So
0: yeah, that, um, if you have any questions on this, like this is a huge topic. It's, it's really hard to do it in an hour. Yeah. Um, you're skimming the surface but i mean really the takeaways of it you know it's you know reasonable to do in an hour because there's not a huge amount of takeaways but i'm sure you probably learned something in here um regardless of whatever the type of there are so hopefully mm-hmm. you did um yeah so um yeah if you want to find phil he's at uh critical o2 on instagram yep hit him up he has you know he puts out pretty much daily it's daily content rather whether yeah. one or two posts a day yeah that's on, what i try to do on you know science related stuff and also just like really applicable um based stuff for you know just everyday athletes or people trying to stay fit mm-hmm. um hit him up if you if you have any questions on the stuff that he's putting out or anything that we put out in the podcast and i'm at resilience hpc on instagram and uh youtube i barely post anymore (laughs) i'm just getting swapped lately but um i post like whenever the podcast is coming i'm going to start doing more videos once i get a little bit more time here Mm -hmm. um but yeah you can find me on there and hit me up if you have any any questions um
1: yeah Yeah. Thanks everybody for all the support and everything. And I really appreciate you, uh, you know, let me know if you, if, and when you listen to the podcast, any suggestions you may have, um, it always helps us, uh, you know, to get listener feedback because that's at the end of the day, we're trying to serve all of you as coaches and athletes who want to get better. Um, so, you know, feel free to DM both of us with, uh, podcast suggestions, interview suggestions, all of that sort of stuff. Um, until next time we'll, uh, keep training hard and we'll we'll see you guys later